Well, hey, it is a privilege to have you guys know my name is Barry Pett, and I uh, serve as the care and discipleship pastor here. And today I have the, the privilege of, of delivering the last message in this little mini-series that was, was supposed to wrap up last week um, on loving our neighbor. And um, we remember, just a kind of a quick review, remember the first week Lawson walked us through the, through the biblical command to love our neighbor from Luke 10. And then two weeks ago, uh, Kevin gave us four catalysts for loving our neighbor based on Paul's encounter with the people of Athens that's found in Acts 17. And so today I want to finish our study by examining this well-known Bible story of Zacchaeus. And I've entitled the message, The Heart and the Art of Neighboring. Because I think in this text, what you see is that Jesus not only models the art of neighboring, um, he also succinctly states what is the very heart that should drive our desire to love our nature. I think it's before we can understand the, the art of neighboring, we have to understand the heart first. So therefore, I want to actually start at the end of the text, and then we'll go back to the beginning. So we read in verse 10 where it says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. And I think this statement is at the, it's at the very heart of our, of our neighboring because it's at the very heart of the gospel. As Christ's followers, he's, he's called us to have the same mission and the same purpose in life as he did. Now, to be clear, Jesus doesn't call us to be the substitutionary atonement for the sins of the world. But he does tell us to go into all the world and to make disciples. And it should also be noticed that, that we can't save anybody. That's not our job. However, we have been given the privilege of being the means by which the lost are sought and saved by the grace and power of Jesus Christ. As we read in, in 2 Corinthians 5 where it says, we, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. God is reconciling the world through us. It says that he has made us ambassadors and he told us to, to plead with others on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. And therefore, my premise today is that the, that the great command to love God and love our neighbor and the great commission to go into all the world and make disciples is best lived out when we adopt Jesus' mission as our own, which he says is to seek and save the lost. If indeed our lives are but a vapor and eternity is in fact eternal, then loving our neighbor must be fueled with their eternal destiny as our chief concern. Amen. Otherwise, we're just really loving ourselves and glorifying ourselves. So now that we understand the heart of neighbor, we can go back and examine the text where Jesus beautifully demonstrates the art of neighboring. So the rest of my message, I will, I will indeed show 10 traits of Jesus. You thought I was kidding. I will show 10 traits of Jesus from his encounter with Zacchaeus, I never joke, that can help us in our quest to love our neighbor like Jesus loves Zacchaeus. So I do have 10 of these, so let's get going. Number one, the first attribute we see in this story is that Jesus was intentional. 
Verse one says that he entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, to understand the significance of this trade and all the others, I think it would help if we, we pause for just a second and look at a little background. You see, the setting for this text is at the very end of Jesus' earthly ministry, and he's nearing the end of this journey that he's been on from Galilee in the northern part of Israel um, to Jerusalem, where we know is coming up is the grand culmination we know as Holy Week. Now, just prior to, to our story today, Jesus had been down in the Beth, at the town of Bethany, which is right outside of Jerusalem. And, and we know this story well because this is where he performed the stunning miracle in front of a really large crowd where he called his friend Lazarus out of a tomb that he had been lying in dead for three days. Now, having a large crowd witness a rotting corpse go zombie apocalypse and walk out of a tomb still wrapped in grave clothes, as you can imagine, had an electrifying effect on Jesus' ministry. We read in, in John 11 that this led many to believe. Make sense? It says it also sealed the religious leader's commitment to have him killed as soon as possible before Rome would step in and strip them of all of their power and authority for allowing the potential of someone to rival Caesar. So after this, Jesus then, then backtracked to the little town of Ephraim to kind of let, let things settle down for a little bit. However, he spent very little time in Ephraim because he was on a mission. And soon he, he headed back out to Jerusalem. But as you can see in this map here, he didn't take the most direct route. You can see here that, that, that Jericho is, is, a, is quite a bit east of Jerusalem, from, particularly from, from Ephraim. So he went out to Jericho and then had to go back. Now, he also knew, in addition to this, not only was it out of the way, but he knew that Jericho was a pretty good-sized town, bustling city. And after what just happened in Bethany, he knew he was going to be running into, there was going to be large crowds, some adoring him, some trying to kill him. It was going to be a big deal. We know that there were some of those that saw the Lazarus miracle, they came to see the Messiah, the one that they believed that he was heading in Jerusalem to overthrow the Romans and to set up his messianic rule, and they were on the cutting edge of it. There were others there who feared him, and they wanted him dead. Now, he could have tried to avoid the town. He could have tried to maybe sneak through in the middle of the night, but he didn't. He went through in broad daylight because he was on a mission to seek and save the lost. And he had some divine appointments in Jericho. The first appointment to read, read about is in chapter 18, where he healed a, a blind man right outside the city. And scriptures talks about that incident. It says that after being cured, that the man began to follow him, glorifying God. Lost, sought, and saved. And next stop, a sycamore tree inside of Jericho. You see, Jesus intentionally chose to walk through, through Jericho in broad daylight. He knew the, large, the crowds would be large and charged, but he risked it all because one of his chosen was in this city and it was their time to be sought and saved. I think as, as followers of Jesus, we are also called to be intentional, not just opportunistic in our love for people, 
to love our neighbors well, we, we have to be willing to be intentional, to go out of our way, to not take the path of least resistance, to break away from our routines, to maybe sit in our front yard, not our backyard, to actually eat lunch in the cafeteria instead of at our desk. We have to intentionally make changes to our lives and our schedules for the sake of the gospel. The second neighbor-loving trait we can learn from Jesus is that he was observant. Verse five says, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. Now, he didn't walk through, what would say, if you know what, what's going on, it could be a tendency to want to kind of sneak through town and keep your head down and cover your face, but that's not what Jesus did. He wasn't trying to sneak through town. He was looking for lost people. And by looking around, he saw a man who badly wanted to get a glimpse of Jesus. And we know this because Zacchaeus was willing to humiliate himself by climbing in a tree. Now, if you're over the age of 30 or 40, my guess is it's probably been a while since you climbed in a tree. Tree climbing is for kids or adults who still think they're kids. Um, either or, he, this, was, uh, this was the goal. He, he put himself in this, in this tough situation. He's probably sitting there with a bunch of boys or kids or girls that were all up there and probably laughing at him. Like, what is this goofy guy doing sitting up here? And not only was, he, was it kind of probably humiliating for him to be up there, it was probably tough also because he was willing to be seen by a crowd who didn't only know him, they hated him. He was a loathsome tax collector. And as the text said, he wasn't just a tax collector, he was the chief tax collector. Very rich on the backs of the people that, who are out there today. But you see, that's precisely the kind of people that Jesus sought out. I think a sad truth for many of us is that we don't see lost people because we're too busy or too disinterested to look up from our self-absorption to see the people that Jesus calls us to seek. Some of you are older enough to remember uh, a Christian songwriter from the 70s, uh, Keith Green. Keith wrote, wrote a song back then called Asleep in the Light where he said, do you see, do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care? Don't you care? Are you gonna let them drown? How can you be so numb not to care if they come? You close your eyes and pretend the job's done. Lost people were never off of Jesus's radar. He never closed his eyes. And we are called to be observant as well. Number three, Jesus was personal. Jesus looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus. Now, if you think about it, the truth is, it's kind of a wonder the little dude didn't fall out of the tree, right? I mean, he had to have been both stunned and maybe even a little horrified that Jesus called him by name. Like, why, why is he looking at me? How does he know my name? Oh, and by the way, thanks. Just in case anybody didn't already notice that the hated tax collector was in a crowd and sitting in a tree like a goofy kid, well, I guess they all know now, so thanks for that. 
But you see, Jesus didn't call his name to humiliate him. He called his name because he's a personal God who calls us as treasured individuals. Jesus is doing for Zacchaeus what Isaiah records of him saying to Jacob and Israel in Isaiah 43, where he said, now, this is what the Lord says. The one who created you, Jacob, the one who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name, and you are mine. You see, Jesus didn't say, hey, you little dude up in the tree. No, Jesus knew him, and he called him by name. As followers of Jesus, we are called to get to know those we seek also. Unfortunately, we don't have the advantage of being omniscient like Jesus But he does call us to care enough about people to get to know them as individuals. Kevin mentioned this a couple weeks ago when he, in his message, he said, maybe that looks like you you creating a map of your neighborhood and and writing names in by the houses so you you know if you're like me and kind of your memory's starting to lose it. You, You can know this stuff. You can remember Maybe it means you write the, on the floor of your work and you write the put, draw things of your cubicles and put, put your coworker's name if it's a large room. Whatever you've got to do, people matter and it's important to know their name. These are people that Christ cared about enough to die for. So the least we can do is commit to talk to them and pray for them by name. Number four, Jesus had a sense of urgency. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. (laughs) So what's what's the hurry, right? I mean, it doesn't seem that Jesus was on a tight timeline to get to Jerusalem. As we see, he's about to go spend time at Zacchaeus' house. It doesn't appear that Zacchaeus was moments from death where he had to try to get him saved quickly before he died. So I think it's a lot more likely that Jesus knew that this was a sacred moment. At this moment, Jesus was right in front of him. Zacchaeus was open to the hope that Jesus could be what he had longed for his whole life. I think Jesus understood the urgency of the moment. Zacchaeus had obviously put some significant effort into getting a glimpse of Jesus. And the Lord wanted to seize on this moment. Jesus was there, Zacchaeus was hungry, the call went out, and the time for salvation was now. I think this scene reflects Paul's words in 2 Corinthians where he said, behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. God creates these moments where the call is heavy and our hearts are open But if we let those moments pass, the urgency of other things and the cares of the world will quickly step back in. Jesus knew this was such a moment for Zacchaeus, so he called him to hurry, to move now. Move before Satan fills your mind. What will this do to my business? What will this do to my reputation? I'm afraid. I'm embarrassed. I'm not ready yet. Not in public, not yet. 
When God softens hearts to the call of the gospel, there is an urgency to the moment. Jesus knew this was such a moment. And he calls us to be alert to such moments as well. Effectively loving our neighbor means sometimes knowing when to patiently wait for opportunities and to plant seeds of faith. But it also means knowing when a heart is open and hungry and ready to receive the gospel message. We are called to be on lookout for these moments and to feel the urgency to encourage our neighbors at that point to hurry and come down, for today could be their day of salvation. Number five, Jesus was unhurried with his time. Zacchaeus, hurry down, because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. Now, obviously, we see a paradox here, right? That Jesus had this urgency to seize the moment and call him down, but then he immediately put the brakes on his journey to Jerusalem to spend unhurried time with Zacchaeus. Now, Scripture doesn't say how long he spent with Zacchaeus, but the, Greek, the, the original Greek word here is minnow, which means to abide, to remain, or to dwell so at the very least, he likely spent the night at his house. And it's very possible that, that he may have spent multiple days with Zacchaeus. The point is that for some time, Zacchaeus had Jesus' undivided attention. He wasn't worried about what the crowd outside was thinking or what awaited him in Jerusalem. For this moment and this time, his attention belonged solely to Zacchaeus. Now, this trait can be tough for us today, can it? I mean, we all succumb to this tyranny of the urgent. I mean, we have, we, as, as I think Kevin talked about last week, like a couple weeks ago, he said, we have a hard time even giving our, our kids a few minutes of undivided attention. They literally have to cup their, our, you know, our face in their hands and say, listen to me. But one of the most critical ingredients of loving our neighbors is unhurried and undivided time. We have to be willing to give the beautiful gift of abiding. Number six. This is a big one. Jesus was self-sacrificing. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. Now, this was the word that probably brought the crowd to a stunned silence. When Jesus called Zacchaeus down from the tree, people were probably surprised for maybe just a moment, but they may have assumed that he was, uh, was, was going to condemn him for his evil work. They thought, hey, this, maybe this is the first step in his messianic rule to deal with the traitor tax collectors who had sold themselves out to the Roman Empire. But when he invited himself to Zacchaeus' house, I don't think anybody saw that coming. I mean, this statement had to have put a massive dent in the messianic expectations of the crowd. And if we know that it further infuriated the Pharisees. I mean, it was a given. You, you only talk to tax collectors if absolutely necessary. And you sure don't go break bread at their house. This story reminds me of a, of a particular scene in the film series, The Chosen. 
which you haven't seen it yet, I will, I, I will highly commend this series to you. But in this scene, it involves Matthew, the tax collector, before he became one of Jesus' disciples. And the scene shows Matthew kind of leaving his house one morning to go to work, and he had obviously made some kind of a deal with one of the vendors or kind of a delivery guys in, in town where he would transport him each day to his tax station by allowing him to hide under kind of a tarp that was in his wagon. It was clear that you know Matthew couldn't be seen in public. It wouldn't go well for him. And this driver sure didn't want to know that people were transporting the hated tax collector and I think this scene shows just how badly people thought of tax collectors. But in our story today, Jesus didn't care. He was making a statement to Zacchaeus, the crowd, and I think us today. Seeking and saving the lost looks like this. He didn't invite him to the temple where he could come to he could talk to him on his terms. He didn't even pull him aside somewhere. Jesus went to his house. He met him in his world. This was a world that others wouldn't enter if their lives depended on it. But Jesus did. Because Zacchaeus' eternal life did depend on it. Now, I think if we're honest with ourselves, I think most of us would probably prefer what I might call spiderweb evangelism. I think if some poor soul happens to stumble into the, into the spider web of our lives and seems to be looking for answers and asks us, then we'll be glad to, to listen to them and, and maybe even share the gospel with them. But as both Kevin and Lawson have articulated in the last couple of weeks, Jesus never practiced spiderweb evangelism. The very heart of the gospel is that he came to us. He moved into our neighborhood. He entered the filth and the grime of our world as a servant. And Philippians 2 tells us this. It tells us to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. I think this truth is also pointed out in the, the sheep and goats discourse in Matthew 25, where he says the identifying mark of a follower is what you do for the least of these. Like Zacchaeus. Do you feed the poor? Do you house the stranger? Do you clothe the naked? Do you visit and care for the sick? Do you go and visit those who are in prison? Do you? We're called to. Redeemer, I, I love that we strive to be a welcoming church. And I, and, I, and, I, and I think we are. But I also think that if we want to be a church that loves our neighbors well, then we have to look a lot more like a fuel and go and less like a stop and shop. And by that I mean it's right and good that we are, that we are welcoming and that we invite our neighbors here. 
But it's far more important that we come here to fuel our affections for Christ and then go into our neighbor's broken homes and and walk into their broken lives and, and share with them the hope that they desperately need and desire. Number seven, Jesus was driven by conviction. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. Most most translations say, I must stay at your house. This is the same conviction that we see in other parts of Jesus' ministry. Most notably is the one where where he said, I must go to Samaria. Why? Well, because one of my lost daughters is going to be at a well at noon tomorrow, and I have to be there to seek her out and save her. Because that's why I came. We see the same resolve on his trip to Jerusalem where where we read in Matthew 16, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So here again, we see this, this missional conviction on display. He didn't care what people thought or said. And it didn't matter where Zacchaeus lived. His divine appointment calendar said that this was the day that he was going to stay with a lost tax collector and he was going to change his life and his eternal destination and failure was not an option. Some of you know that I have my youngest daughter, Kelsey, was a cheerleader all throughout high school and college. So as a cheer daddy, I was, I was naturally drawn to watch the, uh, the Netflix documentary last year about the cheer team from, from Navarro College near Dallas. And one of the things I most remember from that show was that, that after every pre-performance huddle where right before they, they entered the stage, they, they got in this circle and their chant was, we can, we will, we must. We can, we will, we must. We can, we will, we must. To love our neighbors as Jesus did, I think we too have to have a we can, we will, and we must conviction to enter our neighbors' broken homes and lives to share the hope of the gospel because that is what our Savior told us to do. Eternity is on the line and failure is not an option. Number eight, Jesus didn't fear men. Look at verse seven. All who saw it began to complain, he's gone to stay with a sinful man. You see, Jesus didn't fear disappointing those who who had hoped in him as the Roman conquering Messiah. And he didn't fear offending those who were repulsed that he would stay at the home of someone as vile as Zacchaeus. The only one whose approval he sought was God the Father. To love our neighbor well, we must too put to death our fear of man and we have to nurture our fear of God. Scripture is not silent about this. 
Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Isaiah 51, 12, I, yes, I am the one who comforts you. So why are you afraid of mere humans who like the grass wither and disappear? Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body and hell. And maybe the most poignant one, Galatians 1.10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Ouch. There was a time, so you know, when I worked downtown, and as my schedule would allow, I, one of the things I, I liked to do is I would sometimes look for a, for a homeless person and just invite them to lunch. Now, if some of you have ever worked downtown, um, you know that they make a strong effort uh, to keep the homeless out of the buildings. Um, unless, of course, I find out if they're your guest, and that's okay. <laughs> and you know what? I got to where I used to actually got to where I sort of enjoyed the scornful, condescending looks that me and my ragamuffin friends would, would get as we sat right in the middle of this cultural elite. And you know, I think I enjoyed it most. And it was because for those few minutes, my guest, who was typically ignored, spit on, cast aside, swept into the shadows, suddenly felt cared for, noticed, and loved. My being willing to, to identify them and bring them in where they were normally not welcome, even if it was just for 30 minutes, it made a world of difference. And you know what else it did? It made having spiritual conversations and sharing the gospel during our time together not only really comfortable, but it was welcomed. Loving our neighbors as Christ did will require us to absorb scorn and disappointments with others, often. But I think the question that we have to answer is that when it's all said and done, who do you want to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? Your peers or God? We have to hold fast to the conviction that we are indeed servants of Christ and not of man. Number nine, Jesus proclaimed the good news of the gospel. Now this one is inferred in the text, but rest assured, it's there. Verse seven or eight are what we call in, in film world a jump cut, where a camera jumps abruptly from one cut to another from the same camera angle. You know that something happened between the two cuts that the editor chose not to include. Now what we see here is clearly there's a passing of time between when Zacchaeus leads Jesus to his house and then when he reemerges to make his, his grand proclamations in verse eight. Now the author of, of this book, Luke, doesn't share what happened inside of Zacchaeus' home and it's likely because there was no one there except Jesus and Zacchaeus. But based on the dramatic change that we suddenly see in Zacchaeus, we can be assured that at least two things happen. One, 
Jesus proclaimed the good news of salvation inside of Zacchaeus' house. And secondly, Zacchaeus believed what Jesus said. We know this by the, by the radical repentance that, that he showed in turning 180 degrees from his former life and even being willing to make stunning amends to those he harmed in his sin. I hope this doesn't come as a surprise to you, but I, I can tell you that neither the Bible nor St. Francis of Assisi ever said, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Now, make no mistake, as we just studied in 1 Peter, we are to conduct ourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander us as evildoers, they will observe our good works and glorify God on the day of visits. But hear me, living the gospel and proclaiming the gospel is not an either-or proposition. It's a both-and. And then finally, number 10. Jesus was fruitful in his ministry. Verse 9 and 10, today salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. I think there is an irrefutable connection between Jesus' words in verse 10 and the last words he spoke as he died on the cross, where he said, it is finished. His mission was to come and seek and save the lost. And in these three incredible words, he's proclaiming mission accomplished. The Great Commission is God calling us to bring to fruition what he has already accomplished in seeking and saving the lost. But make no mistake, it is a commission. It's not a suggestion. It's not an opportunity. He expects us to be fruitful in our mission. I don't think it's a coincidence that what follows the story of Zacchaeus in our text is the parable of the Manaz found in verses 11 through 27. Jesus told this story after they left Jericho and they were now on this 17-mile journey straight into Jerusalem. And on, this, and on this path, he told this story of a nobleman who left to become the king of a faraway country. But before he left, he gathered some of his servants and he gave each of them a different amount of money, these manas. And he changed, charged them to use the money to engage in business until he got back. Then it says, when he returned, he gathered the servants to account for what, what they did with the resources that he had entrusted to them. And the one that he had given 10 manas to used them to produce 10 more. And he was commended by the master and rewarded accordingly. The one with five also doubled the investment and he was likewise praised and rewarded. But the one given one did nothing except give a single mana back to him. Now you can read it about it on your own, but suffice it to say, it didn't go well for this servant. I think it's clear the, the servant's demise was due to his unwillingness to obey the command to use what he had been given to engage in business until the master came back. He wasn't called to safeguard what he had been given. 
Now, I think it's clear, I, think, I don't think there's any, any question that this parable is not about financial investments. It's a parable about engaging in the business of loving our neighbor and seeking and saving the lost until our master returns. The nobleman was Jesus who went back to heaven to be crowned and worshiped as the sole sovereign of the universe. But it says before he ascended, he gave to each who were sought and found both the ability and the responsibility to invest their lives to bring in the lost ones for whom Christ died to save. Hear me. If the worst outcome of our lives is that we stand before God one day and we hear the horrific words, depart from me, for I don't know you, then I think maybe the next most terrifying words would likely be to stand before him like the servant given the one manah and having to say to God, Master, here's your manah. I have kept it safe in a cloth. We are not called to safeguard. We are called to seek and to save. Hear me, church. My goal is not to heap guilt on you today. But I do have the responsibility to tell you what God's word says. And as God's blood-bought children, he has given us a glorious future inheritance that we We can't even fathom. But still, until he returns, we have been given the ability as well as the charge to love our neighbors by seeking them out and leading them to the one who has destined them to be saved. Not all of us clearly have been given the massive gifts of a Billy Graham or a a George Whitfield or Charles Spurgeon but he has given each of us something. And it's clear that we will give an account for how we engaged in kingdom business with what he gave us. So my prayer today is God would use this message as the fuel that would spur us to go. Let's use every ounce of talent. Use every gift of a day. Every financial blessing we've been given to love God with all of our heart, soul, and strength by loving our neighbor as ourselves, by seeking and saving the lost. We can, we will, and by God's power, we must. May God be praised. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word world, word today. God, this, this text is as convicting as it is encouraging. God, we know that you have, you have lavished love on us like we can't imagine. And one day we will be with you as your children. But as we stand here today in the the in-between of the already and not yet, we know that our lives are not just meant to be static and just wait. 
God, you've called us, you've made us, you've given us a mission, you've given us a purpose. And we are called to be your ambassadors. We are called to plead with those to be reconciled with God. We are called to seek and save the lost. So God, would you use these words, would you, would you speak into our hearts the areas where we need to grow in this? How that we as individuals, how we as a church can, can faithfully fulfill the commission that you've given us. We pray all of this in your name, amen.